the book of Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be finishing chapter 6 this morning. And I'm going to be uh, cognizant of the time. We're later than normal. So um, I'm going to be moving rather quickly. Also, one announcement I did fail to make is I, I believe I was told that we have all five of our seniors here this morning. And so if we could get you to gather up out in the foyer um, along that photo wall back here where we've got the Jinx Bible on the wall. We'd love to get a, a picture of all of our seniors together. So uh, seniors, let's do that. If you see each other, say let's meet back there after service. So open your Bible to Matthew chapter 6 as we seek to finish this chapter here this morning. Now last week, Jesus focused on the impossibility of serving two masters. Um, you can't have two masters. You can't serve both, he said, God and money. Jesus specifically tells those who wish to be his disciples to not store up for themselves treasures on this earth, but to instead store up for themselves treasures in heaven. And in order to be those who are working at storing up treasures in heaven, you have to have a kingdom mindset. You have to realize, what's my purpose on earth after all? Why did God save me? Who am I in relationship to God? Where am I and how am I to be serving him And so we, we work to serve him and store up treasures in heaven because Jesus said clearly that where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And so knowing that the heart of the matter is the matter, Jesus here teaches his disciples that their love for and devotion to God is to be uppermost in their affections. Again, we saw this at the end of verse 24 where he says, you cannot... I've, I've had people try to argue with me that, well, actually you can. And I'm saying, well, all I know is that Jesus said you can't. Uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God's saying that you can't. So good luck on trying, but the Word of God says you cannot serve God and another master. And in this case, in this context, wealth being a master in, in which you find your security. You cannot serve both. Well, if you perhaps were um, at our evening class this past Thursday evening, you know that we discussed the spiritual discipline of service, and um, that all through the, the Old Testament, from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, and we kind of skipped a rock on Thursday from Genesis, and we just skipped a rock all the way through as many books of the Bible as we could to get to the book of Revelation, and one thing that we saw very clearly is that we are to be identified, that God identifies his people as his servants. And people themselves, the prophets, etc., refer to themselves as servants of the one true and living God. And so remember right here in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot what? You cannot serve God and wealth. We are called servants all throughout the Old Testament, and the Word of God calls us to be cognizant of that reality. I'm going to skip a, a, a smaller rock across this pond for you. I don't have these on the overhead, so if you want to write these references down, feel free to do so as I make my way through them quickly. We see in Genesis 18.3, Abraham, he says to the, the three angels of the Lord when they're making their way to him, he says, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Abraham recognized that he was a servant of the Lord. In Exodus 9.1, this one was re referred to on many occasions. The Lord said to Moses, what? Go tell Pharaoh, speak to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go, that they may what? Serve me. 
We might think that he would say that they may worship me, which was what serving him in the wilderness was going to ultimately be, because obedience to God in the details of life is our spiritual service of worship. So serving the Lord is reckoned to worshiping the Lord when it's done with the right attitude, the right heart attitude. So we see that there multiple times in the book of Exodus. In Numbers 12, not so with my servant Moses, he is faithful in all my household. Numbers 14, 24, but my servant Caleb. Again, Joshua 1, 2, Moses, my servant is dead. 1 Samuel 3, 9 and 10, Eli said to Samuel, this is a very familiar passage that you're familiar with. He said, go lie down and it shall be that if he calls you that you shall say, speak Lord for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came, stood, and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. Second Kings 10.10, for the Lord has done what he spoke through his servant Elijah. Job 1.8, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Psalm 31.16, make your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your loving kindness. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, 3.18. So you will again distinguish, you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and the one who does not serve him. In Malachi 3.18, it seems like all human beings on planet Earth are put into two categories, those who serve God and then the rest who choose not to serve God. We are clearly seen as servants of the Lord. You cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot have another master other than the Lord your God. In the New Testament, Colossians 3, 23 and 24, whatever you do, do your work hardly as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you what? Serve. Revelation 22.3, there will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and his bondservants will serve him. Even in when we think of the, the eternal state, we are viewed as bondservants, as slaves of God who are going to be willingly serving the only true and living God forever and forever without end. It's without exception. God's children are called by God and expected by God to be and to understand themselves, their identity, as being his servants, servants of the Lord. So again, when Jesus says here in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve God and wealth, there is a wealth of biblical revelation that indicates the truth of this and that we are called by God to serve him and serve him alone. Don't try to do both. Well, I'm going to try to serve God, but I also want to be super successful in my business. Listen, you just be super successful in serving God and you might see him make you wildly successful in business. It's all about priorities. The heart of the matter is the matter. Where your heart is, where your treasure is, there your what? Your heart will be also. So we're either servants of God or servants of something else, but clearly we see in the scriptures we were created to serve. We were created for work. We were created to serve the Lord our God. So the obvious decision here is to do what? It's to choose today 
to serve the Lord, right? Right, and in, and in doing that, in trusting the Lord comes the peace in knowing that he is thus going to take care of our bare necessities for life. What we eat, what we drink, what we wear. And it's for this reason that Jesus tells us in our passage this morning not to worry about, about such bare necessities. That in putting God first in your life, all these things, these necessities that you need, he says, will be added unto you. Because you see, when we get to 633 and it says, look, you need to be those who seek first his kingdom, that might create a little worry. Well, if, if I'm busy serving the Lord and I'm a servant of the Lord and I'm doing the Lord's business, how am I supposed to take care of myself? And the good news is, is he will take care of you. Let me show you through a couple of examples he gives us here in his word. Look at, oh, I missed this one. This is one of my favorite passages. Where did I miss this? Right there. You've heard of this passage, right? The Joshua passage, as for me and my house, we will what? I'm sorry, boy, I was, I was ready to lay this one on you here, and I jumped right over it, yeah. So we need to make that decision. Choose for yourselves when? Today. Today's the day. That's why I said you need to make that decision today. Joshua made a good decision. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Let's, let's, church, be those who make that same good decision today. Now, Matthew 6, 25, notice. It says, for this reason, I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Uh, this statement at the very beginning of verse 25, for this reason, points us back to the previous verse and that context before this where Jesus teaches that a Christian's only master is to be God. You can't serve God and mammon. You need to be a servant of God. God needs and must be your master. So in light of the fact that God is your master, what are we to do? Well, he says, don't be worried about your life. Psalm 23, the Lord is our what? Our shepherd. Is, is he the great shepherd of your life? If you've made this decision to make God the master of your life, Jesus turns right around and says, therefore, for this reason, not, you don't need to be worried about your life. Do not be worried about your life. It would almost seem that our only responsibility as servants, as slaves to the one true and living God, to our master, is to making our obedience to him the, the primary aspect of that which we seek to accomplish in life because he's going to add other things to us. He's going to take care of these things. He says, is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? And I think intuitively, each and every one of us would say, well, absolutely. Life is more than that. It's more than that. And I think one of the um, unique uh, cultural hurdles that's difficult for us as Westerners in America in a very affluent society is we just don't connect real well with this aspect of what we're eating and drinking and the clothing that we put on our body. We have such affluence. We have so much to eat, so much to drink. We have closets full of food. But in this culture, it would seem that Jesus was talking to some individuals who probably 
on a daily basis. Remember what Jesus taught his disciples to pray just earlier in his sermon. He says, give us this day our daily bread. He's talking to individuals who on a daily basis were out and searching for and in need of daily food for provision for their homes. And then he turns around and he has the audacity to say to them, you can't serve God and mammon, you need to serve God. And in serving God, he's going to tell them, God's going to take care of the bare necessities that you have. And sometimes we wrongly think about this in our culture. We try to project onto other cultures or onto, onto other peoples, and we say, well, what does that mean, that God's just going to automatically provide for them? Well, there's clearly people out there that have starved, famines have come across the land, etc., etc., etc. How do you answer those questions? What about the, the blights that hit, that hit the, you know, this continent or whatever it may be? And I say, well, when you go there, you're simply missing the point. I mean, from that point, then we have to back up to the sovereignty of God over all things and how he rules from heaven in all things. So we don't want to miss the simplicity of the point that Jesus is making when he's talking to people who probably on a daily basis were scratching the earth looking for daily bread, something to eat, and probably didn't have a lot of clothing on their backs. So if we can, uh, brothers, sisters, if we can try to simply take a few steps in their shoes, we might feel a little bit more of the urgency of the, of the call that Jesus makes to making God their master. You cannot serve God and money. Don't fret your, your life away in the pursuit of that which does not offer life eternal. Mammon. You're hungry today, you're going to be hungry tomorrow. Commit your life to the one who is the provider of all these things. And when you seek him first, he's going to show us when we get to the end of this passage right here, he will provide all those things back to, to us. Can you remember back in 2020, at the height of the COVID scare? I can. And there's only one reason I can. And it connected me a little bit. with. I was trying to find a way to take a step in their shoes. And there was a rush on toilet paper. And we were like down to two rolls. And when you went to Walmart and to any store, there was none. Does it, can anybody at least walk in that shoe step? I, that was one place where I found a little connection. I was like, and you know, but Ben, don't worry about toilet paper, a necessity, a basic necessity for life. God knows how to take care of you. And I, and I was thinking about it. I don't remember how we ended up with toilet paper, but somehow we always ended up with just enough toilet paper to get by. How about you? Now, that's a little bit of a, a little silly, and in, in this, this is a much more serious context, and that's why it's difficult for us to walk a mile in their shoes. Um, but remember, the basic aspect of what Jesus is calling these people to do is to make God the sovereign master over their life. Not, mum, not mammon, not money. And that the things that they need, the basic necessities that they need in life, God will do that for them as well. It was the Apostle Paul, and that's why he says about not being worried. Can you imagine, dads, if you didn't know exactly where you're going to get food to feed your family that day? 
you, you might find yourself a little bit worried, but Jesus is saying not to do this. Don't worry about your life. And just on a very simplistic aspect, why is it that we as believers can take a teaching like this and not be worried about, about our life? If, if we were to even run out of food, if we were part of that culture that, let's say, a famine came across and we died from starvation, how, can it, how could it be that we could still not really worry about our life? Well, it's because we know in whom we have trusted and have believed in. And we know who holds life eternal in his hands. And we know that death is no longer an enemy. It's lost its sting because of the cross of Jesus Christ. So Paul could say things really radical like to, to live as Christ and to die is gain. And this is why, even if it was in some of the most extreme circumstances, being worried and being worried about your life is in essence a lack of faith and a lack of trust in God. And what that is is sin. God calls us to be people of faith and to trust in his goodness all the way to the end of the line. The apostle Paul even broadens this out from just the bare necessities of food, clothing, and drink. He says to be anxious, and you might say worried about nothing in Ephesians 6, 4, 6 and 7. To be anxious for nothing. And so that's kind of broadening that principle out about nothing. But in everything, we need to be people of prayer. We give thanks to God for the circumstances that we're in, and then it's the peace of God that will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so it seems that this theme of being anxious for nothing, that God is in control of even the basic needs that you have in life, Paul expands a little further, and he expands it to everything in life. And so again, Paul can say radical things like, for me to live, to die is gain. So the question becomes, brothers and sisters, can you trust Christ Jesus with your life? Are you sitting here this morning with trust in the Lord Jesus with your life? And I'm not looking for theoretical, like in your mind right now, you're probably going, oh yeah, yeah, I did that. Yeah, I've done that. I did that. I do that. Philosophically, that's a true statement, but what I'm wanting to ask you is if you were to look at your checkbook of life, how you're spending your life, not your philosophy of life, but the checkbook of your life, how are you actually writing the checks of the days of your life and spending your life, would you say that you're doing it in such a way that it demonstrates that you are trusting in Jesus Christ with and for your life? That's the tell of the tape. That's what truly tells the story. We can be, unfortunately, uh, very consumeristic in the, West, in the West and very concerned and consumed about food, clothing, drink, etc. I love the way John MacArthur states this. Listen, in his commentary on, on Matthew, he said, Even as Christians, we are sometimes caught up in the world's idea that we live because of our bodies. Have you noticed an obsession with bodies in our culture? I mean... It's one thing if you like you're an, you're an athlete and you make your living with your body and you need to protect your body and strengthen your body and keep it healthy. That might be one thing, but we are, we are absolutely obsessed with our bodies in this culture. He says, and since we think we live because of our bodies, we live for our bodies. We give an inordinate amount of attention to our bodies. 
We pamper the body, decorate it, exercise it, protect it from disease and pain, build it up, slender it down, drape it with jewelry, keep it warm or keep it cool, train it to work and play, help it get to sleep, and a hundred other things to serve and satisfy our bodies. So Jesus is going to say, rather than being obsessed with our bodies, our basic fleshly needs, instead of being obsessed with those things, we need to instead be obsessed with putting God first. Be obsessed with the spiritual man that will see God someday face to face. Amen? Don't worry about your life, church. God is in control. Look at verse 26. Notice how he gives an example of this. He says, look, and I imagine they're out on the Sermon on the Mount, they're outside, he perhaps sees a flock of, of, of birds. Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Birds like every other creature... Jesus says, have their basic necessities provided to them from their benevolent creator. Notice he says says that birds do not sow the seed. Birds do not reap a harvest and put them into barns. Birds are totally dependent on their creator for the production of the food they consume. And year after year, the Lord has provided for the birds, all the birds around the entire world, with with an abundance of food so that there's not an extinction problem with birds around the world. And with, in the bird, God gave them an instinct to go out and to find those resources for themselves and their offspring. And that's the little caveat that I really like the most. This idea of not worrying about your body, not worrying about the necessities of life, God's going to take care of those. I've had some people say, well, that almost sounds like you're saying just sit back and let go and let God. The birds, they didn't just sit back, let go, and let God. They're out scurrying around. They're out doing their work. They're laboring. They just didn't, they weren't what? They weren't sowing the seed. They weren't, God has taken care of all the resources that they need. They still need to go out and do the work to gather it up and bring it into their their little nest and to feed their little chicks and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The scripture makes it very clear that if you, don't, if you don't labor, you should go hungry. So that's not what it's talking about. These birds, they labor greatly, but they're completely dependent on the one who is the provider of all good things. That's, I, I think, the, the simple purpose within this little example that Jesus gives here. And then he ends it with this beautiful caveat. He says right here, are you not worth much more than they? What does that bring us back to? That brings us back to identity. Who do we see ourselves to be in relationship to God? I mean, the, these, these birds weren't created in the image of God. These birds aren't being uh, redeemed from a, a pit of lostness and then being conformed more into the image, the beautiful image of Jesus Christ and his character. But you are. The value and the worth that God has placed in you is infinitely greater than these birds. Are you not worth much more than they? Well, the obvious answer is yes, they are. And so will God, in the same way that he takes care of all the birds of the earth and meets their basic needs for life, will he not do that much more for you as well? 
It's a very simple um, statement that Jesus is making with God's obvious and grand and um, marvelous care over you, his, his kids. So the obvious answer is yes, we are. And it's for this reason that you are not to worry about your life. God cares for you. After all, verse 27, and who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to your life? Nobody. He's delving into the, the, futil- the futility of, of anxiety, the futility of worrying. It's, it is utterly futile at the end of the day because by, by worrying, you can't even add a single hour to your life. I mean, all the worry in the world, all the worry that you could muster up about anything, whether it's food, drink, clothing, or anything, isn't going to change anything at all. But a little labor might. A little hard work, perhaps, could. But worry's not going to do it. Worry's not going to add a single hour, a stitch to your life. Quality of life, none. Length of life, none. It's not going to change anything. As a matter of fact, it might make the quality of your life less pleasant. They say that worry and anxiety leads to all sorts of illnesses, bodily illnesses and mental illnesses. Worry and anxiety oftentimes are one of the main sources that leads to a greater form of that, which is depression. Do you think we're having a depressive problem within our culture today? And I think it has everything to do with the loss of identity, of knowing who we are as being created in the image of God and finding worth and value there. We're trying to find worth and value in all the wrong places, and our culture is encouraging that all the more. Yeah, find your worth and your value in all these other things, in, in anything other than God. Find your worth and your value in anything other than God. And you, uh, the culture, just doctrines of demons, just laps that up. When the word of God is saying the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Find your identity in God. All the worry in the world, you're not going to add one single second to the length of your days. As a matter of fact, there's a negative thing that can happen that does come about by worrying, and it seems from verses 28 through 30 that it's the shriveling up of one's faith. That's one of the outcomes of worry and anxiety. A lack of trust becomes the shriveling up of one's faith. Notice verse 28. It says, And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? And notice how he finishes this section. You of little faith. Worry and anxiety is certain to be that which shrivels up a person's faith. We're not talking about a saving faith. Once saved, always saved. You're not going to shrivel up a saving faith. But a faith that recognizes a, a bold dependency on God, a faith that recognizes that God can move the mountains if he so chooses, but like in the book of Daniel. If our God, our God is able to save us from the lion's den, but if he chooses not to, or from the fiery furnace, but if he chooses not to, it doesn't matter. We're going to serve the Lord our God. 
Either way, in or out, we're serving God. But worry and anxiety brings about a shriveling up of one's faith, and it seems reasonable to assume that some, if not many, of the people to whom Jesus was talking with perhaps had, like I mentioned earlier, had little clothing options. They were limited on their resources. So again, it's, it's uh, difficult for us to grasp this aspect, but even there, even in these circumstances, in other words, the circumstances of, of these individuals to whom he's writing are completely desperate from our circumstances, and he still says that your, your lack of trust in God, your worry, is that which is going to shrivel up your, your faith. Contrary to that, he says what? Observe. Why are you worried? Notice again from nature, the lilies of the field, how they grow. And they, like the birds, they don't toil, nor do they spin. Yet these beautiful lilies of the field, not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like these. God's handiwork is so amazing. His ability to make provision, his ability to make beautiful, his ability to provide for those whom he cares for is great. You're worried about clothing, and he's saying, look at the lilies of the field. This is far more beautiful and a gorgeous landscape that we're looking here than, than the finest robe that Solomon might have put on in the temple. And so if God does this with the grass of the field, which is alive today, we're seeing it, it's beautiful, and then tomorrow it's thrown into a furnace and perhaps it's used to cook cakes or, or warm a house, will he not much more take care of you? The obvious answer, church, is yes. Let's not be of little faith. Let's be people who serve the Lord. And it's for this reason, in verses 31 through 33, that Jesus restates the obvious and points out how worry Anxiety is completely inconsistent with those of us who say that we have placed our faith in the Lord. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? He restates these basic necessities that he's been dealing with. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. The, the word in the Greek here for, the, for Gentiles is the Greek word ethnos, and it, it's, um, it's in the plural, which seems to probably indicate that there's a plurality of, of peoples, and oftentimes it's referring to um, unbelievers, those who are outside the nation of Israel. Gentiles were oftentimes looked upon that way, and so it seems for this purpose that it's translated this way as Gentiles. 
But in essence, you might could just simply say, for those who, who do not trust in God, those who are the unbelievers, those who are in the pagan world, those Gentiles, this is what they do. This is how, this is how they live. This is how they go about seeking after these things. They're, they're the ones that are consumed with worry over how they're going to get food and drink and clothing. This, this shouldn't be how the people of God who are called by his name, those who, who have sought repentance and baptism, John's baptism, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand and we're desiring to be with God in his kingdom. So not only is it a shrinker of faith, it also is indicative of those who have no faith as the Gentiles. So... Jesus is wanting his, I'm going to call this again this, his kingdom kids, those who desire to be in the kingdom of heaven. He is wanting those of us who are desiring to seek after him, to make him our master and not money. He's wanting us to to recognize that we serve a, a sovereign heavenly father who has knowledge of you so intimately that all the things that you actually need in life, he knows of and will take care of. Which brings us back to the issue of identity. How do you see yourself in relationship to God? Do you truly see yourself as a servant of the one true and living God? So in verse 33, notice what he says to you. You need to be those who seek first. This word but right here uh, is... uh, intended to be a word of contrast. So rather than seeking food, drink, clothing, and all the things which the Heavenly Father knows you need, rather than doing that, instead, seek first his kingdom. Now remember, it was John the Baptist who came preaching the kingdom of heaven's at hand. It was Jesus who then also came preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So here he's saying, rather than doing these other things and being worried about these things that you can't take care of yourself, instead, seek first his kingdom, both his kingdom rule over you in the present, in the already aspect of the kingdom rule of God, which is now to be understood rightly as Christ's lordship over his church, and also seek his kingdom rule over you someday in the future, in the not yet perspective. So we have this already not yet perspective of seeking the kingdom, of living under the kingdom rule of God and believing that his kingdom is still yet to come when Jesus Christ comes back again for his church. In other words, be consumed with God's thoughts. Be consumed after God's word. Be consumed after his kingdom. And those who have made a profession of faith, and I'm going to assume that that's many of us here this morning, and who have followed up in that profession of faith in obedience with a water baptism and have identified ourselves with Christ, we need to be those who are seeking his kingdom diligently both now by obeying his word and seeking to do the things that Christ has taught us to do, the very art and act of discipleship. Jesus said, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And this is what the servants of God are called to do, just like we started when we skipped that rock across some of the passages this morning. We are to be servants of the only true and living God. 
And by living this way, by living this way, by seeking first his kingdom and, right here, his righteousness, by seeking to live this way, we will live lives that are set apart unto God. We will live lives that are righteous. We will live lives that are in accordance with his word. We will live lives that, oh, that demonstrate trust in him for the basic necessities of life. We won't have shriveled up faith. We'll be bold and courageous as lions, and we can make a kingdom impact in the culture in which we now live. Oh, and then the good part, he says right here at the very end, and, another and, all these things, all these basic necessities that you need in life, what did God say? He, knew, he knows what you need in advance. These will be added to you. God will, like he did with the birds of the air, he will take care of you. Like he did with the lilies of the field, he will clothe you in the way that you need best be clothed. Don't let the um, advertisers out there convince you otherwise. Be content with what you have. And therein is living a sensible and righteous life. So church, let's be those who seek first the kingdom of heaven on a daily basis. Amen? Again, he taught us to seek that daily bread. Let's seek him on a daily basis for every one of our needs. So he closes this section in verse 34, and he says it again. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And while it's true that each day indeed has enough trouble of its own, we simply could mean, he could be meaning the troubles of trying to figure out what to eat, drink, and to wear. But instead, we need to live in light of the Lord's blessings. Because both worry and anxiety shrink faith. We need to live in light of the fact that we know who holds tomorrow and every tomorrow. God knows the things that you need. It, it, it's God who says that you're more valuable than the birds of the air. It was, it's God who has every one of your hours of life numbered. You can't add to those. It's the same God who makes the lilies of the field both grow and more beautiful than Solomon's wardrobe. This is the God in whom you're making master over your life. The God who is the God of every tomorrow, as well as every today, as well of all eternity. This is the God who will lead us not into temptation. This is the God who will see us through every trial and struggle and the different opportunities that he provides us in life. He's the God who will be protecting us, providing for us, and meeting our needs, etc., etc., etc. You might rightly say that our God is the only true cure for anxiety, worry, and ultimately depression. So church, all we have to do, this is it, all we have to do is learn every day to put Christ first. It's the easy to say, sometimes the harder to do. And so what do we do? We mortify our flesh daily, and we seek first his kingdom, knowing that all these other things will be added unto us. We serve a faithful God whose mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Let me end with a scripture from Isaiah. Might this be true of us, Lord? The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. Let's pray.